Hey guys, just a real quick note on this podcast for context reasons. Uh, this podcast was recorded on Tuesday afternoon. And the reason I'm telling you that is because after recording, I stepped away for a little bit, took care of a few personal errands, and by the time I returned to put the show together and post it online, ESPN had reported more details on the nature of Joel Embiid's guarantee, which is something that we speculated about during the course of the podcast. So I went back and I listened to the podcast to try to determine exactly how much of it held up, and I think the podcast still holds up really well. I even think the guesses we had on the conditions surrounding the guarantee were relatively close. So I'm releasing this podcast, and I think it's still an accurate representation of our views on the contract. So with that disclaimer out of the way, enjoy the show. You're listening to The Sixers Beat with your host, Derek Bodner, right here on LibertyBallers.com and LibertyBroadcast.co. All right, welcome everybody. I am Derek Bodner. I'm joined by Rich Hoffman on the latest Sixers beat. Doing this one old school style through Skype. These Sixers are are away traveling for the week. But um, real quick, there's a lot to get into, obviously, from Joel Embiid to Markel Fultz to everything in between. Uh, we might not get into the in-between stuff, but we'll definitely get into Joel Embiid and Markel Fultz. <laughs> but if you can, subscribe to the podcast. You can get links to that over at SixersBeat.com. Check out the CLNS Media app for Ourselves, B-Ball Breakdown, Real Gym Radio, and Sam Vecini's Game Theory Podcast. Also, if you can, please do leave us a rating, a five-star rating if you can, and a review. We are vain MFers, and we really like those five-star ratings. But also, more importantly, it gets us out to more Sixers fans. Helps our search ranking. How you doing, Rich? I'm not bad, Derek. I feel like the entire summer... We basically talk about, you know, right after draft season and a little bit of summer league, whenever we do one of these podcasts, we complain about not having stuff to talk about. Oh, we got stuff. We got some stuff to talk about. Yeah, we do. Um, all right. I guess we have to start off with Joel Embiid. Uh, just have to do it. Obviously, the word came down yesterday uh, from Adrian Wojnarowski of ESPN, which I'm now finally getting the hang of, that they had agreed on a five-year $148 million extension, which could then be bumped up to $178 million if certain incentives are reached. And you laid out those incentives in your article last night, which is basically if he wins an MVP, if he wins a Defensive Player of the Year award, or if he is voted to the All-NBA first, second, or third team this year. And that has to be done this year. It can't be done when the contract has already started. So it has to be done here in the fourth year of his existing rookie scale. Hey guys, it's Derek again, jumping in with one more after-the-fact edit. The NBA sets a list of benchmarks that teams and players can use to exceed 25% of the salary cap they would earn based on experience and jump into what's referred to as the Supermax territory. And those benchmarks are what we discussed here. You know, All-NBA first, second, and third teams, Defensive Player of the Year award, and MVP award. But what, one thing we didn't bring up, uh, and which ended up being the case, is that teams don't have to use all of the criteria, or they can stagger the criteria and create kind of levels. So you could say, let's say the All-NBA third team gets you 26% of the cap, second team gets you 27%, first team gets you 28%, defensive player of the year gets you 29%, and MVP gets you 30%, just as an example. In this case, what it appears the Sixers did is second and third team don't get you any extra bonuses. It stays at 25%. Same thing with Defensive Player of the Year. Keep you at 25%. 
only the MVP and the All-NBA first team will boost Joel Embiid's salary, and that will boost it to 30% of the salary cap. So once again, I just wanted to jump in here since after we recorded this podcast, more information came out, and I wanted to clarify that. All right, now back to the previously recorded podcast. So that news came down, and we're still kind of trying to shift through all that it is. But I guess before we even get into guaranteed, non-guaranteed, trigger, all of that stuff, what was your initial reaction when you heard that news? Um, I, I, I was... I wasn't surprised. I mean, I think a couple weeks ago on this podcast, we both said, I don't I don't know exactly what we said. We said 50-50 that a deal would get done or 40-60 or, or something in that ballpark. So it, it, it wasn't shocking. Now, obviously, you know, when you follow enough people on Twitter and, and that number drops five years, $148 million, um, you're going to get reactions and takes and opinions flying all over the place. It, uh... As far as what I thought, though, I mean, it's, you know, it's the same reaction I still have now. Okay, what, and that is, okay, well, how much of it's guaranteed, and what are the triggers that will determine whether it's guaranteed? Right, and I think I think if we go back and listen to what we said a couple of weeks ago, and I'm not going to do that because I'm lazy, but I think where our heads were at where it's probably going to be close to, to max contract, it doesn't make any sense for Joel to agree to something that isn't because, he, frankly, he's just not going to have to show very much to earn that next summer. But what you might be able to do is play with the guaranteed amount. And it ended up coming to pass that that was the case. We still don't know exactly what, how much of that contract is guaranteed and what exactly triggers it becoming guaranteed. It sounds like the Sixers would have to release him in order to you know, cut off that guaranteed amount to not pay him the full $148 million. But usually in these kind of situations... It's more than that, right? It's usually like if he has this very specific injury and if this very specific injury causes him to miss X amount of games, then the Sixers have to release him. It's not like they, if he just comes out and he's not playing well in two years, not that any of us really think that's a, a realistic uh, you know, outcome, but it's not like if he's just not playing well or if he has you know, X, Y, and Z injury, it has to be a very specific injury causing him to miss a very specific number of games. Again, I'm just kind of putting out a hypothetical based on, on past, mainly the Brooke Lopez contract, but based on past precedent. But it's very unlikely that the Sixers can just cut him without meeting very specific criteria. And, of course, you had Zach Lowe, also from ESPN, tweeting out that it's one of the most complex you know, salary structures that he's ever seen. Uh, I think Woj has mentioned a couple times that it's about 50% of it is guaranteed with you know, I'd kind of heard whispers about a month, month and a half ago, nothing approaching a done deal at that point, but it kind of jives with what I was hearing at that point that it was, you know, a, a big portion of it was non-guaranteed. But to me, what it really does, this isn't one of those things, you know, if he comes out and he has a meniscus last year and maybe like a new fracture and the next year he has like back spasms, like these things, and he ends up playing 30, 40 games each year, these things are not going to trigger that. At least it doesn't seem that way. More likely it's going to be they said, look, if this navicular bone doesn't, and again, I'm, I'm speculating here, but it's most likely going to be something like if this navicular, navicular bone, I cannot say that word today, I don't know why, <laughs> but if this navicular bone in your right foot, I believe it's his right foot, I had to, I, someone double-check that for me, but if that causes you to miss, you know, 60 games, or if that caused you to miss another full season, then the Sixers would have the option of releasing him and not 
shouldering that entire guarantee. Yeah, and, and it seems like the Sixers tried to weigh what exactly the risk was. Because I think you, you did a good job in your, your sort of more in-depth piece on The Athletic this morning discussing, like, hey, if he if he made it through this season healthy, guess what? He would have gotten four, you know, 101 or whatever whatever the guarantee would, would have been. If I mean, and when I mean healthy, I mean, like, 40 games and he doesn't, seem right. like he has a long-term injury. Like, that's sort of what they're betting against. So for them to pony up, you know, that full amount and be locked in the half of the 148, they're basically betting against the uh, having to pay that contract next year. It seems like they were willing to pay a decent amount of money for Joel, but if for the deal getting done now and JoJo getting locked in, he's also giving them some insurance on the back end. Yep. Which I think is exactly what Brian Colangelo said a few weeks ago when he talked about common ground. That both sides were going to have to make some concessions, and it, it seems like this is the best of both worlds for them. Obviously, the Sixers are going to root for Joel to be healthy. I mean, I'm sure they're going to root for him to be Defensive Player of the Year this year, because that means they have a star player, even if they would have to pay more money. But yeah, if if he does get hurt, and if that, that foot specifically doesn't seem like it can hold up, they will. It seems like they will be able to get out of the back end of this in some way. But again, we're still looking for the specifics on this. And with the way Lowe described it, it sounds like even the specifics of this might be confusing once they're presented to us. Yeah, once we get the specifics, I'll have my lawyer look it over, and then we'll we'll get back to you in two to four weeks. Um, yeah, I mean, to me, it really was okay. What's he going to have to show to get that max contract next year? And it really is. It's it's depressingly low. Like I think we look at games played. And it's like, all right, at 40 games, would you max them out? At 50 games, would you max them out? What if it's 30 games, would you max them out? Everyone I talk to around the league, that's not really what those conversations are about. It's what's the severity of the injury? Why did he miss 30 games? Why did he miss 40 games? Why did he miss 50 games? And if it's not career-threatening, you just don't get 24-year-old talents like this. Somebody's going to take a chance on that. Absolutely. The, the like, like the Chicago Bulls, like yeah. th- they would – if. If I were a fan of that team and their front office didn't decide to throw him an offer sheet, I, I would be furious. Yeah, the games played is really a, a relatively small part of this equation. Like, if the Sixers misdiagnose a you know, meniscal tear, just a complete hypothetical, I'm not bringing that up for any reason, but if the Sixers misdiagnose a, a meniscal tear this year, that doesn't make him necessarily any more injury-prone than any other meniscal tear in the NBA. So I think it really the, the, the details were really important. But I think basically the Sixers said, okay, look, as long as he gets through this season without a career-threatening injury, then this extension makes sense for us. Then this extension, you know, everyone's kind of looking at this as a risky extension. And look, if he gets injured this year, it is. It could backfire in a big way. But as long as he doesn't get injured this year, this was the last chance the Sixers had of getting him on really any of it not being guaranteed. And the way it was described to me today was that for a max rookie extension, this is the most non-guaranteed that's been included in such an extension. Like, it, it's the, you know, safest max rookie extension in terms of, of a guarantee amount. And this was really the last chance the Sixers had to get this. I think we were all kind of hoping for a Steph Curry-like deal. Uh, and again, just because of how rare Embiid is, I think that may have been a little bit optimistic, but I think that's what we're hoping for. But I think when you take a step back and you look at it, being able to get this sizable portion of it, whether that's a 50% of the 
that Woj is, is, is reporting or whether it's a little more complicated than that. But being able to get that, I think, was a, an opportunity that wasn't going to be here as long as he had any kind of even remote health this season. So I think it makes sense to kind of jump on that. Yep, and and what it does in a couple of ways turns this upcoming season into an absolutely critical season for Joel Embiid and the Sixers. The first being, as you said, the uh, if he gets injured severely here, then the Sixers, that that's where they'll have to eat the risk because he he wouldn't have gotten the same amount of money on the open market, and, and that'll be a bad scenario. On the other end of it, he has this clause where if, as you said, MVP, Defensive Player of the Year, or one of the three all-NBA teams, that turns into $178 million. So what do you think I, – I know we both wrote about this a little bit today. What do you think are his odds of, like, let's say he plays – 60 games or so, what do you think the odds are of him reaching one of those criteria? Okay, so this is where I kind of have to curb myself because I look at it, if I'm a voter, would I vote for him? And when you look at last, if we just use last year's center nominees as a baseline and just assume that the exact same three get it, which I know they won't, but it's the easiest way to kind of make this hypothetical but last year it was what? It was Anthony Davis, um, Rudy Gobert, and DeAndre Jordan. Yep. So if you said, give me 60 games of Embiid, would I vote for him over those guys? Or at least one of those guys? I would say that probability is very high. Like, it would be tough for me, as much as I like Rudy Gobert, and I like him quite a bit. And I remember getting into some debates with Sixers fans back in the day. There was a very heated Nerlens rudy Gobert debate that looks a little more obvious now in retrospect. But I was... I was on the unpopular Rudy Gobert side of that. Like, I, I really like, like, that kind of defensive anchor has always really intrigued me. I can't say that I wouldn't take Joel Embiid. Like, I, I would take Joel Embiid, I think, over both of those guys, both um, DeAndre Jordan and Rudy Gobert. And again, I don't think that's, like, I don't say that, like, I have hesitation, not that I have hesitation saying that, but, like, there's a responsibility in saying that is the way Brett Brown would describe it. But I think I would. Now, would other everyone else around the league? You know, I'd say maybe he has a 65% chance of making an All-NBA team, something of that sort. You know, I think a lot of people are going to are gonna really focus on those 22 games missed maybe a little bit more than I would. So I'd say maybe a 65%. Yeah, it's, it's funny to say because, of course, MVP is the one you toss out right away. There's very little chance of that happening. Right. Um, defensive Player of the Year. <laughs> like... It, it, it is where it is a situation where you have to put in like you have to weigh what the general voting public will uh, will think about this because guess what if he plays sixty five games a year there is absolutely an argument that he'll be the defensive player of the year the, yep. the effect he had on their freaking defense last year like if that you know he's gonna have better talent around him this year. I mean, like, he they were defending better than the Golden State Warriors last year when he was on the floor. And if he plays 60 games this year, like, they're going to be in the playoffs probably because they're a very good defensive team. Yep. So it, it's funny to think, like, even though he has the talent to legitimately be a defensive player of the year candidate this year, he probably won't get it. That That is more based on reputation, and that's something you have to earn over a couple of seasons. And I don't see... The Gobert, 
Green and Kawhi Leonard trio giving that up anytime soon. Um, but as far as the All-NBA teams, man, like, the, the center position is open. It, it's a lot harder to make it as a guard and a, and a forward. But like you said, I mean, DeAndre Jordan and Rudy Gobert, that's not setting the bar that high. So so I do think there is a legitimate chance that this ends up being a $178 million contract, which, I mean, as you wrote about today, really affects their cap space next year. Yeah, I mean, at that at that point, you're talking about Embiid having a cap hit of $30 million next year. I think it's like 30.3. That's a big cap hit. That's almost, not, not almost double, but that's, you know, $12 million more than what his cap hold would have been if he went into the season as a restricted free agent. And again, we made that argument already where it makes sense to give him this offer now so that he you can get that that non-guaranteed portion locked in. Brian Colangelo has clearly said in the past that he values, you know, basically when you want to, you, when you pick a guy and you say, betting my team, my future on this guy, I'm tying our ship to him. At one point, there are smart ways to go about it, and there are not so smart ways to go about it. And he clearly thinks that you should work to keep that guy happy, that letting him enter restricted free agency and trying to nickel and dime him isn't the best way to go about that. I get that, but $12 million is a really big concession, and getting now to that 35% max space that they might want to get to with this Embiid extension and with a, a Covington extension, which I put at a 95% probability of happening at this point, they're going to have to make some really tough, tough tough, choices. And not only that, they're probably going to have to try to move a guy like Jared Bayless. They might have to even move a, a, you know, a draft pick. So maybe some of these guys like Justin Anderson that you would otherwise bring back. He's only making $2.5 million, but you're really going to have to nickel and dime to get to that spot. Yeah, and the uh, I, I guess the, I don't want to call it good news, but the, the market might not, there might not be a max level shooting guard out there that is interested in the Sixers. But... To get somebody like, you know, I'm just throwing out some names here, like Avery Bradley or Danny Green or somebody who makes sense with this roster, they might even have to nickel and dime to get to those guys' level. So it'll be interesting to say. I mean, that is the risk that the Sixers are taking on. They're uh, they're putting on that cap space this year. I think the low point of the cap space that I projected out was about $16 So, yeah, even getting that at those guys' level will uh, will require some work. Yeah, I don't think those guys are going to get max offers, but you know they they're probably going to make over twenty million dollars. I mean, we got to see how the market shakes out next year. But yeah, this this certainly affects how they're going to be able to spend their money next season, and and that's the risk the Sixers are taking on. But the good news for them is if Embiid comes out and dominates this year and finds a way to get to that thirty percent criteria, they'll have locked up an awesome player to a non guaranteed contract. So. Yeah, the thought of sitting here worrying about Embiid winning a Defensive Player of the Year is ludicrous. And like I'll I'll say that that I'm being ludicrous. It uh, it is a good problem to have, that's for sure. Yep. Okay. So now here's the other news. Obviously, I mean that's the long term outlook here. The good news is Embiid signed the contract, and now he's probable to play magically. Uh, who would have guessed that? <laughs> yeah. I mean, I don't want to give. Howard asking credit. I'm not a I'm not a fan of doing that whatsoever. But are, if you're going to ask me, is there any possibility that maybe this was tied to a contract negotiation? And oh, by the way, the Sixers, you know, probably look at him as like a high end sports car and said, hey, if we don't have to put too many more miles on his feet and knees and back, hey, we'll, we'll work him into shape when he gets to camp. 
it, it seems like there was a, at least a realistic probability of that having been happening. I know Zach Lowe in his podcast today said Embiid's been healthy all the time. I really do think that there is a big part where the Sixers were just, just like, look, we'll clear him when he gets to camp. We don't want to unleash him before he gets to camp. We realize that's then going to take a little bit of time to get his fitness base up to the point where we're not worried about fatigue causing an injury. And if he misses a preseason game, two preseason games, or whatnot, we're okay with that. Again, it would have been nice if maybe they could have articulated that in a little bit clearer of a way. Definitely. It didn't lead to so much speculation. And if the Sixers are on that end of the argument, then Embiid's camp is like, fine, we didn't really want him playing before a contract extension was worked out anyway. It seems like it worked out for all parties, with with the exception of maybe Joel Embiid. But, um, I mean, ultimately he's got 148 million reasons why it worked out too. Yeah, and, and by the way, him coming back is not going to be a – I mean that that's going to be a godsend for this team because they they haven't guarded anybody no. in this preseason. They they really need him. I look, I I don't know exactly how he's going to look next week in Washington presuming, you know, he plays a couple of these preseason games and he's ready to go because of the rust factor you talked about and because of his fitness base and everything. But man, they really need a guy who I mean that that guy changes defenses and they haven't guarded anybody with their current roster. So you know, it's going to be really good to see him out on the floor tomorrow night in uh, in Long Island. I'm not sure that game is on television anywhere, but no. uh, or at least not in the Philadelphia area. Which I mean, come on, it's 2017. We got to I mean, first first objecting Sixers fans to Tommy Heinsohn for <laughs> a whole game, and oh my god! I have uh, to say, luckily, I was only half watching last night's game because I was a little focused on uh, on the Embiid news. Um, and look, I'm going to go back and end up rewatching that game. It might end up being on mute, though. I can't. I can't take that guy. I, um, I kind of like watching him. I, I, I'll defend him on this. He, he he really doesn't hide who he is. Like I think some of these guys try to come off as partial commentators while really just right. shoving their home team's propaganda in, in everybody's face. Th- Tommy really doesn't play. Like he's he's telling you that he bleeds green and all that. But man, like. In last night's first quarter, I think he complained about five calls that were obvious fouls on the replay every time. Like, Ben Simmons getting just drilled in the face on a drive, and he thought it was clean, <laughs> which, is, which is funny. But, yeah, getting back to Embiid, I mean, they the Sixers, you know, if, if they want to survive this first month schedule, they're going to need him playing at a high level, and getting him back on the floor will allow that to be at least a possibility. Hey guys, we're going to dive into Markel Fultz's jump shot in a bit, but before we do, a quick word for our sponsor. I know we have a lot of shoe fans out there, and this episode of Sixers Beat is proud to be brought to you by Greats, makers of classic, stylish, and comfortable sneakers sold at a great price. Greats is Brooklyn's first sneaker company, with classic styles, exceptional quality, and available at an affordable price, with a wide selection of both men's and women's shoes, and versatile styles suitable for any occasion. I recently received both the Rooster Slip-On and the Pronto, which are hands down the most comfortable pair of shoes I own, and versatile enough to wear on almost any occasion. I can honestly say I'm extremely satisfied with my decision, and I think you will be as well. And we've got a special deal for our audience. Save 15% on your first order with offer code SIXERSBEAT. Go to greats.com, that's G-R-E-A-T-S dot com, and be sure to enter SIXERSBEAT to save 15% at checkout. Greats believe so much in their shoes, they offer a no-risk return and exchange policy to guarantee that you get the right fit in a style you love. That's greats.com and use our promo code SIXERSBEAT to save 15%. 
Okay, let's switch over to the other side of the court real quickly. And really by the other side of the court, I guess we're mostly talking about Ben Simmons and Markel Fultz, the two lead initiators that are now terrified to take jump shots. Rich, what's going on? I think the Sixers have a curse on their first year, their players. Like, this Markel Fultz thing is so baffling. I mean, God, when we were talking about this guy in – in June and July, I think we said, you know, he's going to probably struggle a little bit to adjust to the NBA three-point line. He might not shoot a great percentage from his, you know, in his first season, and he'll have to work in, at becoming a great NBA shooter. What we did not expect is for him to be shooting the ball like Shaquille O'Neal <laughs> or Philip Seymour Hoffman and along came Polly. I mean, I, it is baffling how bad his shot looks. And I, I will say this, too, like, a lot has been made about his free throw and, and how ugly it looks, and, and rightfully so. I mean, that's a place where you can isolate that form and get a good view of what he's doing. He is afraid. I don't think he has taken – I mean, he took the 1-3 at the end of the shot clock in the Celtics game. This is a guy who hunted long twos and threes off the dribble at Washington and was really good at shooting them. Not, not only would he take them when the defense gave it to him, he would create those shots. He is putting his head down and going to the rim every time now, and it is—it's baffling. I—I I, I don't really have an explanation for it. Well, his coach kind of gave an explanation in saying that he thinks that Markel Fultz's sure shoulder, sure shoulder, might be a bigger deal than he's been letting on. And Markel says that he doesn't really know when he developed the shortness, the soreness. He doesn't know exactly what caused it. Rich, if his shoulder is so sore that it's causing him to shoot like that, why, why is he playing down? Yes, yes. Ugh, it, I don't. And I mean, this is as as we talked about before the podcast. This was this is now happening a week, not even a week. Yes, not even a week. Four days after Brown said, I don't think his shoulder soreness is going to be a lingering problem. It's just a precautionary measure that we're holding him out of Friday's game. And then, you know, fast forward, the weekend happens, fast forward to Monday, oh, I think it's actually hurting him a little more than he's letting on, Brett says. It, I, I got to be honest, the, he, he came into camp with a uh, broken ass shot, with a, with a broken ass shot. Not the same one we saw on Monday, which, I mean, God, ex- experimentation a week before the season is the last thing you need. But, yeah, he came into camp with a with a shot before – I mean, before we had heard about the shoulder injury. I know Fultz said he doesn't know when he hurt the, hurt the shoulder. But, man, it, it still comes back to our basic point here. If your shoulder is hurting you that bad that you cannot lift it and shoot it in a normal way, you should not be playing basketball. Yeah, I have no, I have no rebuttal that. I will say, you know, he came in at camp, made no mention of the shoulder being sore. No. None whatsoever. He takes a foul shot and we go, whoa, 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 whoa. What in the world is that, Markel? He goes, nah, I'm just kind of screwing around. His coach goes, yeah, I don't know why he's screwing around, but he's screwing around we'll try to get it back. No mention of the shoulder. Comes out on another um, uh, scrimmage. Whoa, what in the hell is that kind of a shot, Markel? Brett's like, ah, you know, we'll, we'll get him back to where it needs to be. It wasn't until, you know, after the first preseason game, which, again, is after we've already noticed this this messed up shot twice and asked about it, 
that all of a sudden his shoulder comes out. I don't know, man. It it I'm I'm not I'm not buying that being the reason. I hate to hate to really call anyone well then again this this franchise hasn't exactly won our, our trust. This is weird. He just and like you said, it's not even a well, it is partly a chain shot because it's like I tweeted about the other day. If that is your form, you know, that's kind of the form where you would have on a free throw if you decided in, you know, mid April when the season ended that you were going to remake your, your, your free throw. That's kind of the base. It's not even a base because it's a jacked up base. But that looks like somebody who's trying to rebuild the base and then build on top of it. That's not something you do eight days away from the, uh, the start of the regular season. He is so far away from looking like he can make jump shots at a consistent level in games to where he looks like he's willing to take those jump shots in games and to being where I think he's going to make free throws consistently. I, I have no idea what to expect from now eight days out from the start of the season. That is what he was good at at Washington. He was great at it. I, it, it is so baffling, and I am totally on the same page as you. I, th- this idea that his shoulder has been slowing him down this whole time, it really doesn't pass the smell test. Like, I... He he came in with a broken shot. I, I've never seen anything like this. A guy completely – a good shooter completely changed his shot. What, what, what would you say about his shot at Washington? It, it, was, it was certainly workable. Sure, sure. It was a little bit inconsistent, which is a problem he had going back to high school. Like results-wise, it was inconsistent. I think probably release it was inconsistent too. I'd say he had a little bit of a hitch in the middle. Not really a hitch, but kind of a – a little bit of a segmented shot. Like, there's a little bit of a pause in the middle there. You know, I think sometimes the angle that he went up at probably could have used a little bit of consistency. And I don't think it was broken. I think it was inconsistent. I don't think it necessarily needed – well, I don't think it needed at all to be completely overhauled. I I, I don't – and, I mean, Brett's gone out and said I think he was trying to fix something that didn't need to be fixed. It seems like the only one who really feels like this needed to be changed was Mark Hell and whoever the hell he was listening to. It is so baffling. And, I mean – you know, he, he has these turnovers in these games where he's just driving in the players who are playing off of him and not respecting his jump shot. Like, the reason the Sixers drafted him first overall is if somebody played him like that, he has the ability to cross over, take a step back, and knock that shot down. And with with this change shot, I mean, it, it's just a completely different player. I, the free throws get all the focus, but... He's not confident at all at taking a 10-footer. And by the way, free throws, I know they're a little bit different than your normal shot. You cannot completely overhaul your free throw stroke and have the same shot. It's it's roughly the same thing. And I just think, like, look, like, the, the thing we saw last night, the Sixers realized that he had a hitch in his shot. I mean, I... Everybody realized it, but they they finally said, okay, we're going to address this. This is ridiculous. You can't continue like this. And I think they, like like you said, they brought the ball above his shoulders just to get rid of that hitch for the time being to try and build off of that. Like, I don't think that would be his final shot in their estimation. I I think that's like the first step in trying to get it back. But, man, like, if that's what they're going to have to do, like, this is going to be a painful process trying to rediscover his form. Yep. No, that's not happening in eight days. Um, It really does. Like, if this didn't start happening before the shoulder injury, I would look at that and go, okay, maybe he's just not comfortable shooting ball. Sit the F down. But the fact that it was happening before there was any real talk about a shoulder injury, 
I don't. I mean, and, and, I don't know what's going on. And, and even if he was hiding the shoulder injury over the summer, like think about this: who would be hurt during the summer and say, "Okay, my shoulder's hurt. I have time to rest my shoulder in the summer." Let me go remake my jump. Let me go shot. remake my jump shot <laughs> instead of just resting my shoulder. Like it just doesn't make sense, man. And and by the way, he also has knee soreness uh, for tomorrow night's game, which. Wait, he he had another injury too, right? He had shoulder, knee, and didn't he have a uh, he had an ankle injury in training camp? Oh, and, well, wasn't that in a what did he have in summer league? Yeah, his ankle. Okay. Um, so that's not good. No, not great. Um, and look, I mean, he's made especially last night. He made some decent plays at the rim. Like he he got to some spots. He got you know had a few turnovers getting there, but he got to the spots. He made some tough layups. But those layups wouldn't he wouldn't have to make nearly as many tough layups if people could had to play on him. And that was really supposed to be the you know, what you really look forward to with Markel, where if you were playing off of him, he could make that pull up shot like you said. If you were guarding him tight, he could make that spin move and get in the lane and, and make plays that way. He was a you know, the what and this phrase seemed like it, it really popped up overnight and everybody now uses it constantly to the point where it annoys me. But he really was a three level scorer. And now yeah. it's like it really was. Like at one point, you said, "Hey, he can score off the pick and roll. He can get the rim, or he can shoot a jump shot." And you left it at that. And now it has to be a three-level score. But he was that three-level score. It's it's frustrating that we are now, like I said, eight days away from the start of a regular season that, for the first time in you know half a decade, this team has any real expectations for, and we have no idea what to get for him. And my concern is, is besides the fact that Markel won't shoot, and now you have. Two primary ball handlers who won't shoot, which is a little suboptimal in the, the space-obsessed NBA. Just a little bit. Yeah. A little bit. But you also now have Brett Brown, who, look, we all wonder. And, again, Brian Colangelo has given us no real indication that he's thinking this way. But just a history of human behavior suggests that shit sometimes rolls downhill. And you have a team coming in with real expectations. If they get off to you know, a 3-10 start, is Brett Brown now going to go, hey, Markel, go sit on the bench. We're going to get, you know, Jared Bayless in here because at least he'll attempt a frickin' shot. Like, and will that then stunt his development? Not that it's going to stop his development, but is that a, a less than optimal situation for him to develop in early in his career? And all of this seems to be happening for reasons unknown. It's just, I, I don't understand how he's supposed to regain that shot while playing NBA basketball games. Like, yeah, it's going to be tough. It's, you know, if, if this is what your shot is when, when you play at the speed and, against the length that NBA defenses have, like, you're you're going to revert to what you know, and that's that's not shooting the ball right now. And it's, I mean, it, it makes Ben Simmons, who shot three for, three for ten from the line last night, it makes his problems at the line seem like small potatoes. Because at least Ben's hips and upper body are, are moving in one solid motion. Like, at least his problems seem... You know, if not fixable right away, at least it seems like he's on a consistent path. Yeah, it's just I. This is the last thing I expected from Fultz at, at this point. Like, man, I think we knew he is a young kid, and he was going to have to develop his body and stop eating the Chick Fil A, and he was going to be a bad defender, and maybe it would take him a while to read NBA defenses. I did not expect him to have a broken ass jump shot. Right away, this is like, I'm not saying he can't get this shot back, but this is so far from an ideal development. I mean, this could set back his whole year potentially. And it's just, I I got to imagine the Sixers 
are, are really frustrated, and I wonder if Markel is too. I mean, people are God. His his shot went viral last night because of how bad it was. I mean, this was yeah. a guy who was the top pick in the draft four months ago. It just yeah, it's, it's a really unfortunate turn of events, and <laughs> I think the, <laughs> the overlying feeling here is I don't know exactly where they go from here. Yeah, I mean, it's just it's like you said. There's there were battles we expected to have in camp and at the beginning of the season that were pretty much unavoidable. From the youth of the team, the newness of a lot of key pieces, the tough schedule, acclimating all this together, we expected all of, you know, maybe Joel Embiid not exactly being up to, to complete speed when the season started. These were kind of problems we expected to have. But Markel Fultz being flat out scared to shoot was just, and again, that doesn't mean it's necessarily the biggest long-term problem. Like I still have a lot of confidence in Markel Fultz, the prospect, and in his long-term future. It was just not a problem I expected to have at this stage. It really wasn't. And that, to me, I think maybe when we step back and we, you know, we get some time and let this sink in, and who knows? I mean, we, we, we overreacted to the Embiid stuff, and, and here we are. He's going to be playing. So maybe in a month, his shoulder feels better, and he's back to the old Markel. And again, this podcast looks freaking stupid. It wouldn't be the first time. It won't be the last time. <laughs> but it is, uh, it is certainly a problem I didn't expect to have. It, this issue hits close to me, too, because in high school, I jacked up my jump shot, too, by working on it just in the, the incorrect way. I shot thousands of jumpers in my driveway, and I screwed up how uh, how to use my hips. I was shooting close to the basket, and when it got to the point, it became a segmented shot, as you said, and it took me a year to figure it out. Now, luckily, Markel is a much better athlete than me and has his whole day to work on his shot, unlike a high school student. But, yeah, it's just, it's just an unfortunate development. And, yeah, like you said, like there's a chance he can work around this, and hopefully his shoulder can get better and... You know, he can get back to to the level he was at, but, like, I, I just want to watch a guy who, who makes people pay for going under screens, and it, it doesn't yeah. seem like the Sixers are going to have that for at least a little while. Yep. All right, anything else you really uh, want to bring up? I mean, spent a lot of time really devoted to two people here, but, uh, frankly, from what we saw the rest of the team the other night, it's not exactly like I'm sitting here dying to talk about them either. No, I mean, it... The other night really showed how much they're going to miss Robert Covington if he misses any amount of time. Because they're, I mean, you know, we talk about the the interior defense and Okafor was not, was certainly not uh, playing well last night in that regard and and Amir Johnson wasn't helping things either. But man, there are just so many blow-bys on the perimeter, whether it's Bayless or Stauskas or I mean, they started with Saric basically guarding threes last night. They need Robert Covington really bad. and Obviously, he's not hurt or anything. They just decided to rest him last night. But, it's, I mean, the printer defense has been rough to watch. I did the observations from that game last night. It was one of those where it was like, I don't know, do you just throw away the film on this one? Because I don't really have any other takeaways except everybody looked pretty bad. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, like I said, I didn't I didn't necessarily my my focus was divided last night as details of the Embiid extension came out and when I was focused it was more like, you know, a train wreck and watching Markel's jump shot and going, "Oh my god, how did we get to that free throw shot?" Certainly none of the perimeter defenders like you said missing Embiid and Covington is a lot to overcome. 
Uh, luckily, Covington's just rest, and Embiid is playing. Uh, you know, is playing on Wednesday now, which uh, which you will be heading out there for. Uh, you know, it's a, a big deal when we start traveling on preseason games. But yeah, it's uh, it's it's bad. I think probably the only one I watched last night. I went, yeah, you know what? I I enjoy watching you, and you're not frustrating the hell out of me right now. Was Firkin? Yeah, yep. played well. Firkin. Stroke looked good. Uh, what, what was the other thing I was thinking of? Oh, uh, Rashawn injury. That, that hurts. No, yeah, we didn't even talk about that. Yeah, I mean, you know, it doesn't seem like a, a long-term thing, but for now, I mean, we're, I would imagine we're going to see a lot of Amir Johnson. Yeah, and this this is going to bring up a real interesting point because Embiid, obviously, or not Embiid, uh, Okafor has a an option that needs to be picked up by the end of the month. And as we just said, getting now to a maximum salary contract, especially because there's uncertainty in whether Embiid will make, you know, 25.2 or 30.3 million, and some uncertainty in how much the, the draft picks next summer will will eat into. You know, that six million or so that Okafor is going to make is a real consideration. And if I'm being completely honest, I'd be a little bit surprised if they picked that up. Me too. And so now you get to the point where, okay, do you really worry about? showcasing this guy anymore like has that ship completely sailed and do you just write him off as a sunk cost because look if you turn down that fourth year option he's now an unrestricted free agent no matter who who has him the Sixers trade him the Sixers keep him he's going to be unrestricted next year so I mean how much can you realistically expect a team to give you when they're not even going to have the the right of first refusal for him when he does eventually become a free agent it's um you know what you're going to trade him to a team who thinks he's going to help put him over the top like I just I don't see that world kind of existing. So it will be interesting, first, whether or not the Sixers pick up Okafor's fourth-year option. And if they don't, whether or not they really prioritize playing him, even if, you know, Rashawn Holmes is out. And does Amir Johnson then get those those first backup five minutes? It will be, there'll be a lot of interesting little, um, you know, little roster battles and playing time battles coming up here. Yeah, and, and I would, if I were... We're wagering on this. I would imagine that they don't pick that up because, like we said, six million dollars that makes a big difference next year. I mean, that that clears up space for a potential core piece. And I, you know, I, if they thought that there would be a market for Okafor, maybe they would pick up that option just so you know they would be able to trade to a team who who would theoretically be able to have that right of first refusal. But I think, you know, just from the history of the last year and the, the trouble that they've had trying to trade him, my, my guess is now with what the uh, the buying that Embiid's contract puts them in, my guess is that they wouldn't pick that option by up by uh, October 31st. Amazing. Amazing. The, the 31 games played in out of, what, 246 total, just got $148 million. And the guy drafted to be, to, to be Embiid Insurance is a... Uh, now might not get his fourth-year option picked up. Yeah. Really goes to show you how different of a prospect they are. But, um, all right, I think that's probably about all that I have. Again, the Sixers are on the road this entire week. week. I can't speak today. Rich will be in Long Island tomorrow, which is a a fun place. I have nothing against Long Island. It's just you don't typically travel there for a basketball game. Oh, I've had some bad experiences, man. That's where my dad's family's from. The, the Belt Parkway, some of those traffic experiences are pretty rough. Uh, yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, really, anything in that general area, the traffic experience are pretty shitty. But at least with um, 
at least in Brooklyn, it's really easy to get to in public transportation. But we got the le- remaining three games, two of which are remaining two games. I'm sorry, two, both of which Embiid should play. And then we have, what, really no big decisions then coming up until the start of the regular season because that Embiid contract, which would have had a deadline of the 16th, locked out. So we got two more preseason games, hopefully two more games where Embiid plays. And then next Wednesday, eight days from today, we have the start of the regular season in Washington. But All right, thanks for hopping on, Rich. We will talk to you soon. Hi, right, buddy. Tip. You've been listening to the Sixers Beat right here on LibertyBallers.com and LibertyBroadcast.co.